Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, Wayne White. Wayne is a U.S. Marine veteran. He earned his Bachelor's of Arts degree in Geography at Cal State Fullerton and his MPH in Environmental Sciences from Tulane's School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. He worked for 20 years as a defense contractor specializing in assignments in remote areas. His personal expeditions have taken him to New Guinea, the Amazon, and Africa. Wayne has spent the last three years as the winter manager of the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. Wayne, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Nice to be here, Mike. Now, Wayne, podcast is uh, Whiskey and a Map, and I understand that you have an affinity for scotch. Is that correct? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I try not to start any earlier than like 7 a.m. or something that would be. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, if I'm going to have a drink, it'll definitely be a scotch. And one of them is Shackleton, is it not? Sure, certainly, yeah. Uh, I think many people will know the story about Shackleton's whiskey uh, that uh, he left. The, there was a case or two of it that was buried at his uh, camp there uh, on the coast, uh, dug up some years ago and then recreated. And I have a few bottles of, of that, that that I actually come in various grades, too. Most people don't know that. They think it's just that cardboard box. There's actually another grade of it where it comes in a little cardboard thing, and it's wrapped in straw, and it has some very cool stickers and things that go that. And then there's the ultimate. It, it's actually in a wooden box that is marked British uh, Antarctic Expedition um, 1907, and that's really cool, and there's only a few of those probably in the world around. Is the taste uh, different than you used to? Um, I have to see, you know, I've got, I, I have never opened the box, the box one, uh, the wood box one. So I don't know if each one's a little different. They should be the same. They're supposed to be copies of his whiskey, but the prices are quite different from the cardboard box to the straw, the one wrapped in straw to the, the one that's in the wooden box. Should be the same whiskey though. And Shackleton had this, uh, this particular blend uh, made for him. You know, it's funny. I, because I've had people, when they drink it, they say, oh, it was the best whiskey ever. And I think back, and I've got a book. There's a book out there, Shackleton's Whiskey. And I think, I think my own feelings on it would be, if I were launching an expedition and I'm bringing whiskey and things with me, it wouldn't be the finest stuff. It would be what somebody donated, um, realizing that you've got a crew of you know, Navy guys and, uh, and such down there. Um, you know, this isn't, uh, it wouldn't have to be the finest stuff even back then. So it wouldn't be today either, but it does have a distinct flavor to it. They've recreated it doing some kind of a process. And, uh, um, and that's not what this is tonight, by the way. Unfortunately, it's not. But uh, I, I generally um, will save that thing for special occasions. And I was able to actually break it out the other day for something that occurred. Not that this isn't special, Mike. It is. Nice. Uh, Wayne, you know, you've spent a lifetime working in, in one form or another in some of the world's most remote areas. What led you to that calling? 
You know, it's, that's a best. That's a best question. Uh, it, it, it's easy for me to answer with a photo, which I don't have in front of me, but I think I sent it to you. That, that people will say, "Well, how did you get into this?" They'll come in my house. They'll see my collection. I don't know what they think. Do they think what? At, at twenty years old, all of a sudden, I had this epiphany that I want to explore the world. That stuff starts young, and I've got a photo of myself taken when I was five, wearing a pith helmet and carrying a little plastic rifle and a and a pair of binoculars and a, a whole. It was a little explorer outfit, and I distinctly remember that that thing. It was at a grocery store. I remember being five years old and going with my mother, and I wanted that so bad. It's the first memory I have of wanting something so badly that little explorer outfit. And so they got it for me for Christmas, and there's a photo of me taken taken wearing that thing. The point I'm making is I think in all of this, those things start young. They aren't something that happened later. Now, sometimes life intervenes and you end up going down a certain route. You have children, you have a family, you do these things, and then you become a lawyer or an accountant or something, whatever you do to make some money. But I still think that go back to when you were a kid, go back to those first dreams that are there and they're in all of this. And, I, and in my case, it started way back then when you have the unique distinction of having died in the Amazon, or you're here to tell about it. Yeah, it's a long story, and I'll just, I'll just cut it short. It's a tragic story. It occurred many years ago in 1985. It was July, I believe, of 1985. And I was down in the Amazon for a short trip, and my whole purpose for being there was to collect a blowgun and poison darts. For some reason, uh, I wanted a blowgun and poison darts. I'd researched where to get one, and I went down there and um, one thing led to another. Uh, I flew, ended up uh, landing in uh, Colombia. My Colombia was a gateway for me to the Amazon. From Colombia, um, Bogota, down to Leticia, Leticia, uh, which is a little Amazon port that Colombia has. And I could talk for hours on this thing because it was the whole trip, although short, was an incredible situation. When I was when we we stopped at a place called Cali, Cali, Colombia to refuel. And also we blew a tire there. Cali, Columbia was not a good place to be in 1985. And I remember, I mean, these were the wild West drug infested, unbelievable, you know, days that were occurring and why I thought that was a good idea. But so many <laughs> times in my life, I, I thought such things were good ideas. And so I'm in Cali, Columbia, I'm off the aircraft and then they, they come up, they tell us Avianca has just gone on strike. We're on strike for indefinite period of time, but we'll take you to Leticia. We'll drop you off there, and then whatever happens, happens. Flight continues. They fixed the tire. They took us to Leticia. I ended up going upriver in the Amazon, uh, spending some time with some Indians. I picked up my blowgun and poison darts, and I met some very, very, uh, let's just say, interesting people up there that were doing interesting things at that time for their, I guess, business. And uh, fortunately, I don't know, I think you know, it was Drunks, dogs, and children kind of immune from being run over. Maybe Wayne fits in there sometimes too, because I was with, I was around some places that probably shouldn't have been with some people that were very inquisitive of why I was there. But rather than a bullet in the head and thrown in the Amazon, I was transported downriver back to Leticia in a very nice speedboat. <laughs> so, um, and uh, uh, which I was very thankful for. But that's a story in its own right, what happened with those guys. But doesn't matter. What I'm heading up to is I head back to Leticia. I've got my blowgun. I've got my poison darts. I still got some time. I go through the little town. I can't get out. Avianca is still on strike. I go to this little shack building that's for the Avianca office. And there's a woman in there. And I said, 
I want to go on the next plane. And she tells me, okay, manana, manana. My Spanish was horrible. My Spanish is horrible. So I said, manana, okay, I'm coming tomorrow morning. No, she goes, no, 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 no. And she's telling me stuff in Spanish. My Spanish, again, is terrible. I don't understand what she's saying. She's saying manana, but no to something or other. So I say, okay, hell with it. And I cross the, uh, what I do is instead, I just, I've got my pack still, my blowgun and poison darts and all that. And I head across the frontier into Brazil. At that time, there's no border. There's no checkpoint. You just, one minute you're speaking Spanish and the next minute you're speaking Portuguese. So you go, you know, Venice Dias to something like Bendia or something, how they say in Portuguese. So I end up out in, uh, in, in the, some, some, an interesting place there where a lot of farmers were doing slash and burn agriculture and I make camp and I spend a little time there. And, and um, a day or so later, I come back into Leticia. And when I come back into Leticia, they're playing the music. It's a frontier, wild west ass place. I mean, it's just a crazy little town, gunshots at night, all this stuff's going on. And um, I come back to the town and this guy sees me from that I knew from the hotel I'd stay at previously. He's screaming. He says, Senor Blanco, Senor Blanco, me, Wayne White, White, right? So, Senor Blanco, the American embassy is looking for you. So, why the hell would the American embassy be looking for me? As I get more into town, I'm listening to the blaring music that's usually out on the street and all this that they're doing. And it's very somber music, very somber stuff. Well, I quickly put together what had happened. That flight that had taken off the next morning was an old DC-6 that had issues. It ended up taking off all right. And then about 10 miles out in the jungle, it crashed and killed everybody on board. There were about 75 people. And I was on that flight manifest. That woman was telling me was that it wasn't an Avianca flight because I was asking her, was it Avianca? Is Avianca off strike? And she's saying, no, no, no. She wasn't saying you can't get on the flight. So I didn't really understand, thank God. So um, everybody's killed. I come back through town. I get quickly in contact with the American embassy, my wife out in California at the time. As they're identifying bodies, they're telling her, it's, I'm not one of them. I'm not one of them. And the people at the embassy were really super. Well, they were quite surprised that I called, actually. But um, when I explained what had happened, you know, and the fact that I hadn't, I didn't realize to be at the airfield because she said no, but I was on the flight manifest. It took off. Everybody was killed. And then I, uh, it was a terrible thing. Um, so I was saved by my bad Spanish, and my Spanish is still really bad. That's a nutshell story. There's more to it. <laughs> so when it went down, they thought you were on it, and they were reporting yeah. you that possibly dead? Oh, yeah. I got the newspaper. It's framed in the room behind here. It's a terrible newspaper. It shows the smoking hole in the jungle. It has a list of the passengers. And here's all these you know, South American-type names, and then Wayne White on there, too, in the newspaper. So, you know. It kind of goes with the rest of the things in the house. Everybody else is dead in here too. So, well, thank goodness that uh, your Spanish is that bad. Never got better either, Mike. <laughs> in all of your travels, what is the most extraordinary, the most unusual thing you've witnessed? Something that you would have to see to believe. My God, there's been so many, and for me, for me to think something's extraordinary. There's so many possible possibilities in places where I've been. Uh, we wanted to talk, we'll talk a little about Indonesia, Arian Jaya, New Guinea. I spent six expeditions I did there in the 80s and 90s, and I witnessed some incredible things. I stood in some places probably no one's ever stood, or at least no Westerns ever stood. And let me qualify that. And, um, you know, everything from a funeral 
and how these people had a funeral, you know, out in the jungle and what they do, their rituals and all that. To another thing, which I didn't talk to you about, but I once, um, I once uh, in South Africa, I was always interested in the Zulu War, and uh, I followed the route of the 24th uh, Infantry on their way to their big uh, battle at Asandawana in Warwick's Drift. And because I did that walk, which is around 120 miles, they let me camp on those battlefields. And um, that's probably a podcast in its own right, what happened with, on those battlefields, because they don't let people do that. And the, the, as I heard, particularly at Asandawana, um, they told me I'd never spend this stay the night. I'd take off because they'd let a couple of Dutch guys a year before and they'd left in the middle of the night. Well, I didn't leave, but let me tell you, I didn't feel it was an interesting experience. So I forget if you're trying to lead me into a certain uh, uh, thing that we might've talked about, but I've witnessed so many things that most people would probably find extraordinary, but after a while to me, it seems normal. Well, that's the good thing. It's usually, you know, when I ask that question, uh, every once in a while, somebody, comes across something that they just have to scratch their head and just it's um, you just can't really believe unless you saw it. I probably have a lot of those things that people wouldn't even imagine, like crossing the mountains in New Guinea, you know, in area and Jaya, the Indonesian side, and things I saw with the tribal groups and such and tribal wars experienced some of these things or, you know, um, uh, we're being on those battlefields, South Africa, uh, particularly you know, camp there or just other things. Um, you know, out on the islands that I worked at, uh, out in the Pacific, some of the things that I saw, it's just so many, it'd be hard for me to say, because it's, again, my normal is so different than what most people's normal is. I think it's normal to walk in, you know, to have a, a, a leech. There's a funny story, I, I, a funny story about humor. I put it on my Facebook page once, and I was try, just trying to explain how humor is different with my wife and I, for example, and probably most of the world's probably different than mine. And a quick story. I was crossing the mountains, these mountains from the interior of New Guinea, walking down to the Asmat coast. And we were on the rain side of the mountains, heading down to the, into the coastal swamps. And we're, we're in a place where it's just raining and terrible and leeches, it's absolutely infested with leeches. And um, I get into this village and this rain shower, I'm covered in mud. And I decide I'll take a shower of the water pouring off a building and wash, you know, wash with it. And, and while I'm washing myself, um, I feel this thing on my eyelid and I start pulling it and it's it. I get this thing out here like this. My eyelid pull, is pulling out. It's a leech. It's stuck on my eyelid. So I'm pulling on this thing, which you normally wouldn't do. There's a way to get him off, but they didn't matter. He, he, he popped free and then blood is running down my face and I'm in this hellhole. Point is, I thought that was funny. And then my wife, that's what she would answer. You thought it was funny. <laughs> so humor, you know, just my life is different. <laughs> Yeah, when I try and explain those stories to people, they just look at me quizzically and I just say, hey, it's brain damage. Yeah, it's probably your best thing to do. People, most people, you know, sane people aren't going to think something like that's very funny. <laughs> you know, you took, uh, a, like you say, a number of trips to Indonesia and New Guinea. And it goes yeah. by various names. Why there? Well, let me tell you, uh, I, when I was, um, I'm a Marine for many years ago, and, and I always knew I was going to get out and do some exploration. And after I got out of the Marines, was in college, I was looking around. Um, well, hell, it goes back farther than that, probably movies that I'd seen and such. But I tried to find the place on the planet that I thought that was the most remote. And it was the island of New Guinea. And if anybody knows anything about New Guinea, that island, um, 
it's divided in two sections now. You've got Papua New Guinea and you have Irian Jaya. Well, they used to call it Irian Jaya. Now it's called West Papua, I believe, but it's Indonesian. Truly, that place is probably still the wildest on the planet. And because it's got this incredible, well, these people that used to eat people, for one thing. And then um, you've got this incredible mountain chain in the middle that creates amazing isolation. And then this swamp area that, you know, absolutely... Um, detours most people from wanting to go to a place like that with crocodiles and mosquitoes and snakes and all those things that most people don't want to be around. Well, I do want to be around those things. I did want to be around those things. So I picked New Guinea as a place to go. And my first couple of trips, the first trip I did was uh, I hiked the trek, the Kokoda track, the Kokoda trail, an old wartime trail in 1981. And um, after doing that, that didn't really, it wasn't enough of the, of the, of the natural people thing, the missionaries had taken over the trail and there wasn't much traditional stuff going on. So then I came back a few years later after being killed in the Amazon and I hiked through part of Enga province, which is probably the wildest part of Papua. That still isn't very wild. There's roads and things that go through New Guinea and people go there and you're all, some of your people probably seen their fantastic photos of the guys with, you know, like the Huli wigmen from the Southern Highlands. They got yellow face paint and, these people come back and claim their you know, reincarnation of David Livingston with photos that were taken a mile from an airport while they were staying in a hotel. Um, that shit's not for me. And so I went over to the Indonesian side and did four trips there. And that place is, was wild, especially in the 1980s still. Um, truly wild place. Now, your show, Whiskey, Whiskey and a Map. Whiskey and a Map. Well, I have both. I've got, I've got some very nice scotch. But it made me take out an old map, thinking about this ahead of time. And this old map, I have had it for many years. It's been in a box. I haven't taken it out. It's in bad shape. i got to do something about it. This old map was an air map. It was used by pilots in the 1980s, probably the 1970s. And what's cool about it, it's got these places on here, these marks on here that says that basically the topography is unknown. Now, maybe satellite has mapped it now. But back then they hadn't. And there's actually places on here that were unknown. They didn't know what the elevation was. And you can't probably see it, but you've got my marks through where I was on this thing. And um, on the trips that I did, I don't know what I was leading with that. But the point is, here's whiskey and a map. And here's a real map of uh, some pretty tough trips to New Guinea. Where is that island located? Oh, it's north of Australia. It's uh, north of Australia. It's um, pretty famous from the wartime, from the, the Papua side. Well, no, both sides, actually. Uh, wartime activity from World War II. Um, I think it's the, considered, I think it's the second largest island in the world. And what's cool about it is because of its geographical features and very warlike people, uh, it has been very isolated. And it has... Uh, one thing they've said about it in the past, I don't know how it is these days, but that there were over 700 languages spoken there because it's so isolated by these groups that they all develop different languages. And, and I saw that firsthand tre trekking through and having problems going from one area to the other because of tribal wars and things that would stop, you know, stop people from proceeding. Uh, very, very isolated place. Is there one of those trips that's most memorable to you i, I mean you know i'm gonna tell you it, an interesting thing that happened i was always alone for the most part and the last two trips were very very difficult um crossing the mountain and getting down to that osmot coast it's hard 
for people to imagine now committing yourself to something where no one knows where you are. See, these aren't, I've railed against this modern stuff where everything's on the internet and you have sponsors and you do this and then you have, you know, it's all this be me, look at me, uh, self-aggrandizing, publicity stunt seeking stuff. Uh, these things, when I was out, I was by myself. No one knew where I was. No one knew you know, where I was headed. Uh, if something would have happened, that's the end. There is no finding or anything. No one would have probably known ever where I ended up. And when you do something like that, you make a major commitment that um, you're on your own. You don't have sponsors. You don't have support teams. You don't have any of this shit that I see in these modern supposed expeditions. You're just alone. And But interestingly enough, one of the trips where I learned something was I, on my about third trip, took my wife to New Guinea and went on what would I thought was a much milder, easy thing where she could just see um, where she could see the place. And I thought she would appreciate it. And it was only about a 40 mile trek and it wasn't through anything that I thought would be all that difficult. But what happened that was interesting with that was that I saw when I march through, I go through these villages, it's quick and hard with the groups, you know, guys carrying stuff. I'm not messing around. I'm not looking like an easy mark. I'm not looking like a lot of fun probably. And I, and I, and I keep that up and I want, you know, it's just, it'll stop a lot of problems. Just having that, you know, having that demeanor that, you know, you're not an easy mark because these people think differently with weakness and such, and they wouldn't get it from me. But what I saw with her was the women would interact with her. And I, with me, they, you know, God, I, they look the other way. They can't, you know, I'm just this thing marching through. But with her, she would interact with these women and their children and such. And that was really cool. That was something that I'd never noticed before. And I've noticed it other times now when I've traveled with my wife, because my wife is a, likes to sew and likes to do the crochet and do this stuff. And if we're in a place like Egypt, a little remote area in Egypt, and she's sitting out doing the crocheting, automatically she has something kind of in common with these women and things that are doing these crafts and such. And that's cool versus me who, you know, I, I, I don't quite exude that kind of a <laughs> vibe, I guess, which on purpose for the most part. But um, so that was cool with her there and then getting to see how the women interacted with her. I saw something new and I enjoyed it. Now on these solo expeditions, you would use uh, local people to assist you? Yeah. And I, you know what? I used to use the word solo a lot and I don't so much anymore because the fact was I did use local people. But what I didn't do was and I see it a lot. I see it a lot now these days with these pseudo expeditions where you've got all these other people involved and you've got support staff that you're paying and you're doing all these things. What I would do was go village to village and hire someone to take me to the next village carrying gear and such. I didn't hire some company to set up a trip and take me to here or there. It didn't go that way. In fact, no one I was ever with had been to the places, that, the long-term places we were going to go, like to the coast, for example. But I had a couple of guys that I took from the, from the highlands who had, who, one had some slight English because he would lead little tours around the village. He was a strong, tough guy. And we went together to the coast. So by solo, I, I want to be careful with that term. However, what I didn't do, none of this, I didn't sign up with some company or do anything like that. It was me, you know, and, and it was my compass, my going south, my showing the route and then having these guys assist. I'm not taking anything away from that. Um, I just want to, I would want to give credit to these guys that carried gear and did what they did. Interestingly enough, when you're in a place like New Guinea, if you're out on a long trek, what will happen to you is 
you'll have a bunch of people carrying packs and such. And then at a certain point they stop, they're not going anymore. They can't because they might be at war with that other tribe. And so then they back off and then these new people will come on. So you could go like, if I'm out for weeks, I might have five or six different people carrying different things because they can't, they can't proceed due to the wars. It's a lot of wars there, but, um, I want to give credit, you know, not, I don't want to push the, I don't want to push the solo thing too much because I did have villagers that um, certainly carried loads and did, and did a lot to, to, you know, that ensured the success. And that was a a fascinating experience witnessing that and witnessing how uh, bushy some of these guys were being able to out in the middle of nowhere, build a jungle camp, you know, to them, it was nothing to, with bamboo and whatever they could find by the side of a river to build a hut, to start a fire, to do all these things is, is quite amazing. Now you must've spent, obviously spent a lot of time with them around the fire at night. What were the people like? You know, I, I had one guy that could speak slight English, Yesaya, who, who I, I think I was with on several trips, but most of them, not a word. I could speak, I, I could speak a little bit of Indonesian. I, these were my guys and I wanted to make sure I took care of them as best I could. And yet they were such a culture different, such a culture different than, than, you know, what I come from or what we come from. And an example was walking out of Wamana, walking up over the mountains. There's a, there's these people, these Highlanders, Wamana and the highlands of, of Indonesia, New Guinea is around 5,000 feet. Well, you get up, we were up in the mountains around 12,000 feet trying to cross the mountains. It's cold up there, and they weren't used to that. And I'll never forget it as we were walking one day, and there's no jungle growth. It's just this real stunted high mountain or mountain-type growth, um, small stunted palm trees and things. And all of a sudden, one of them runs, drops his pack, runs, and he's got his head stuck in a hole. It's, he's climbing into this hole. What the hell is this guy doing? And up above him, there's another little hole, which you didn't see. This thing pops out. This little, it was a little marsupial pops out. He, he didn't know that, you know, had the escape hole. Well, then someone yells and he comes backing out of the little hole his head was in and he grabs that thing. And I think he brained it. I'll never forget, you know, he, he, he brained this poor thing. And then as he's holding it up, this little baby marsupial falls out of the pouch, the little pouch. It's like, holy shit, you know, what is going on here? And he takes it and puts it in a bag. We're still up around 12, 13,000 feet. The Chakora Peak is to my right. It's 14,000 something. We make a cold camp and start a fire early. And, and my guys were all set up against a rock. It was a rock that had an angle. And they put their, they had all their, uh, their wood, they collected wood, which I don't know where they got from up there, you know, but they did enough wood and whatever to burn. And I'll never forget going over after I made my camp with my tent. I went over where they were. And they were, they were starting their cooking and such. And there was blood all over the ground from, from the, this poor marsupial that they butchered. And they had it in a pan. But the strangest thing was that little baby marsupial. They had kind of crispy fried it. And I have photos of this. I've got a, I'm just converting old slides now. That little marsupial, he had his little tail, his little, fort, his little legs sticking out. And one of them had his back legs and was eating him head first with his tail hanging out of his mouth pushing this little dead, you know, little cooked charbroiled marsupial into his mouth, eating it from the head first with the tail hanging out of his mouth. God damn, you don't see that very often. <laughs> I wonder what marsupial Just tastes like. 
Yeah, well, especially, you know, when you eat the whole thing, bones and all, legs and everything else. But he's pretty charred, so he probably was pretty crispy. But, um, you know, they gave me a little bit of it. And I can't remember if I ate it or not. I, I tended to be careful with what I ate because I couldn't afford to get sick. You get sick out in a place like that. So I was always really careful with, with stuff. So I don't know if I ate it or if I passed it on. I had a few times where they would offer you food. And it's like, oh, God, you know, that could be the end of me. This is the time before GPS. I mean, I'm, yeah. map and compass, I'm a map and compass guy myself, and jungle navigation is really hard. How'd you do it? Well, I, I, and I was trying to look up the Indonesian word for south. I think it's Selaton, but I'm not sure. I'd have to look on the internet. But uh, basically, here is my navigation. I've got a compass. I'm going. I'm looking to the south, and I know if we keep going south, we're going to hit the coast eventually. Now, I don't know. It's a long ways away, but just keep going that direction. So I would say, you know, south, 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 and we would work out to, because the trails and such that we were on going to villages, they don't always go south. They might go north, then go south. So God knows how circuitous we were going, but that's what it was all about. South, south, keep going south, and we'll finally hit the coast. And then we finally hit rivers once we got out of the mountains. And once we hit rivers, we know they empty into the sea. And I didn't really care. Anywhere they came out down there, I could navigate, you know, to the Osmot area once I got there to the ocean. But um, that's how it was. Very, very primitive. No GPS. So you come down from the highlands, down through yeah. the higher uh, jungle forests into the swampy area. Is that how it came? That's how it went. Yeah, you're one minute. I'm, a, I'm a, you know, Waman is about 5,000. Nice kind of Colorado type feel to it. I'm a little more tropical than Colorado than Denver or something. But then you're up 12,000, 13,000 feet heading over the mountains. Then you end up on this rain side of the mountain, which is just wet, green, lushed up, and then down into the swamp areas, which is fascinating once you get down into the swamps with the, uh, with the rivers and such and all the stuff that happens there with the different yeah. tribal people. Tell us about the swamps. As, as oh, you come gosh. down and you start getting that swampy area, if we were standing by, your, standing by your side, what would we see? Wow. Oh, my God. You know, I'll never forget this, Mike. Um, my first trip, I was trying to get to the coast, wasn't successful. I mean, I've been a bit, this is actually my fifth, but my my first attempt to get from the highlands area in the interior of New Guinea down to the coast wasn't successful. I ended up across the mountains, right? Everything was right there. But I hooked up with this, this indigenous group that were crocodile hunting. Well, they were going a little different direction. It kind of swung inland through the real swamps. It was so fascinating. I just said, hell with it. I'm just wherever I end up with these guys, I'm going. So I'm with these guys that are indigenous crocodile hunters. And, um, my God, I'll never forget that. You know, you're in this swampy area. You're going through this stuff. You get into these really, uh, I don't know how they were navigating. I don't know because it wasn't like this nice little stream. It turned into this area of where they would have to get out of the canoe and pull and pull it through and cut brush and stuff. that was like that African Queen movie. It looked a lot like, like that. Um, and they're, and they're, they're cutting the brush and we're getting through, getting through the swamps. We'd make camp in these things that would sit above the water or on poles that must have been just communal. Anybody that's out there could stay in them because you're staying, it keeps you, you know, you climb up a ladder and you're in the, you're on this platform. And I'd, and I'd, I put my tent and then mosquitoes, like you'd never could imagine, you know, would come in and they would be out hunting for crocodiles. And one night I'll never forget, I'm in my tent and I hear this noise. They're coming back from their hunt. I didn't go out with them at night. And I hear him throw this thing up. I hit his crocodile. They threw him up next to the tent. He was still alive. He was tied up, thank God. But it was kind of, you know, it's like, okay, you know, kind of surprised me, this, you know, crocodile. 
And uh, what was funny is they, they stayed, they were so happy. They got this big crocodile. They stayed up all night and they butchered this thing. And there's a photo of me. It's a pretty cool photo in a canoe, a dugout. I had the guy just point the camera. He took a better photo than I could have ever taken it. He's sitting in this canoe with my hat. But what it doesn't show is there's a big kind of bucket thing behind me. And I'm leaning a crocodile head is actually behind me from that crocodile from the night before. But the swamps, man, those things, you know, you get down there. They are incredible. I could really spend some time out there. You you don't know if those things go back, you know, a million years. uh, God knows what all is out there. What type of wildlife other than the crocs did you see? Oh, heck, you know, snakes, birds. Um, New Guinea is really, really known for birds. People that are into birds, uh, you know, love the place because it has these incredible species like the bird of paradise and such, which are just amazing. Oh, and then the cassowaries, which are probably in that room here, have a cassowary is very similar to an ostrich, but not quite as large. Um, a very dangerous bird. They've got these big toes, like I said, not quite as big as an ostrich, but, but big enough to where they have been known to kick and they're strong enough to where they could really, they, they, they have killed people before by, you know, a quick kick to somebody hunting them. Uh, big bird, the cassowary, they have those in the interior. Um, uh, lizard snakes. Um, if you're into insect life, there's probably a million species that haven't been to, you know, uh, yet uh, classified that would be there. Um, it just teems with life. And that's what I love about the jungle. It just teems with life from, from, you know, every angle. And before people get the wrong impression, I mean, this isn't Club Med. If you're down there in the jungle, there's got to be oh. the, the humidity itself has got to be a killer. Yeah. 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 I mean, you're in a, situation where you're soaked you know all day long i i was i got pretty good with my clothing i learned on my first trip through the kokoda track in in papua new guinea i learned a lot about clothing i learned what worked and what didn't work and stuff and that basically you're going to get soaking wet that is going to happen um, it's just how you you know the kind of clothes that you can have where you can dry out especially at night is you don't want to be with especially wet boots are a bad thing i got a kind of a trench foot thing that uh, from my first trip through the Kokoda track years ago that stayed with me for a long time. My feet were in bad shape from that. Uh, and I didn't realize how bad it could get, but it got to be where I, when I was done, I'd finished that track. I could almost couldn't walk. My feet were in such bad shape. I learned from that experience. Uh, but no, it's, it's um, I think most people would find it quite miserable, uh, hot. Uh, it just could have an absolute downpour like most people have never experienced at any time. You could be walking through mud that's up to your knees. Um, you're crossing streams that God knows what's in there as you're, as you're you know, crossing these things. Uh, I think most people would probably find it somewhat unpleasant. To say it mildly. No. <laughs> I didn't. But <laughs> <laughs> I did do it. I shouldn't say that. Of course, you're, you know, you, you go, what the hell's wrong? <laughs> what if you end up thinking this is a good thing to do? <laughs> well, it, it reminds me, I was down in Borneo. Um, there was a section we were doing a paddling around on the ocean from one island to the, the small one. And it was just, we'd been going for days back hurt, you know, you got everything going, not enough yeah. food and you're feeling, you know, miserable. And all of a sudden I looked around and go, it was about sunset and I looked around and go, man, I'm in the South China sea. And, and yeah. you know, all of a sudden it just makes it all worth it. Yeah, Mike. And, and what I always try to tell myself, and I've done this anywhere I've been in the world, is I try to picture where I am on a globe. And I just think, wow, I am here. I'm standing in this spot 
whether it was, you know, New Guinea or Borneo or these are the places I've been or, or, you know, out in the Pacific Islands or the South Pole. Just picture where you are and then picture from above, you know, where you are on the planet. And how cool is that? What did you learn on those expeditions through New Guinea? Well, you know, you said something the other day that when we were just talking about this, that that um, I thought about later and it, it hit me and I wouldn't have really thought about this in that way. And that I was responsible for these teams of men moving through the jungle and doing what we were doing. I was responsible for them. And this was probably now I'd been a Marine many years earlier and I had done some things working and such. But I had these guys lives in my hands in a way. And I remember I remember one fellow, Yesiah from the Highlands, picking a guy to go with us, another Highlander. And he picked his cousin. I think it would have been his cousin, Yelus. And I asked him at one point, why did you pick Yelus? Because he's strong, because he can carry. And he said, no, because if he dies, I won't have problems with the family if he dies. Because they would, it's a, it's a, it wouldn't have an issue. Another family might have wanted God knows what, but because they're related. And that was why he, poor Yelus got chosen to come with us. Basically, he was more expendable. But the fact is, people aren't expendable. And I remember with these guys bringing these Highlanders down to the coast and they got malaria and having them on the coast, they're Highlanders. They weren't exposed to this type of a thing. And now they're both down. One went down first and then the other. And I've got them in these kind of bed things. They're covered. They're sweating. I'm giving them the medication that I can give them, trying to get them through this thing. And I'm responsible for it. I caused it. I'm the reason they're down there. I'm the reason they had malaria. I'm the reason. And, you know, I got, you know, they were, we nursed them back to health. I got them back to the highlands and such, but it really hit me, the level of responsibility. It was something I never forgot. Um, you won't feel stuff like that working in some insurance office with the people that are sitting out there in their cubicles and such maybe, but goddamn, where I've been in the world, I have, and you take care of people. And it was something that I saw that my, what I did had an impact. And, uh, uh, and I, I, I needed to do my best to take care of these fellows. You are a student of leadership, I understand, and, and you've made a real study of this. What are the qualities that make a good expedition leader? Well, you know, uh, recently, uh, some time ago, I was in a kind of a, a Facebook thing that I didn't really like being in, but it had to do with where I saw there was a something I wouldn't even term an expedition, something that occurred in, in uh, uh, South America, which to me was a hokey thing that had been done before and it wasn't any big deal, but these people had gotten together and it had kind of fallen apart. And uh, by the time it was done, um, uh, the leader uh, was upset because he wasn't being recognized as the leader. And um, my feelings were, Hey, you know, if you're not the leader, if they don't think you're the leader, then you're not the leader. Um, but you look at, you look at expeditions where people are in, in truly peril and you can then do comparisons between the South Pole is one of the best where you've got a Robert Falcon Scott, you've got a Roald Amundsen, you've got an Ernest Shackleton. And in general, Ernest Shackleton is hands down considered this great leader. Um, Shackleton had his flaws, too. If you really read, you really get into some of the things they all did. But let's, what's number one? Caring about your people more than you care about yourself. You have to. You take care of your people. Your people come first. If you have a little bit of food left, your people get that food. Uh, you take care of them first. Um, there's other things that you have to do that, you know, once you get into the South Pole, how, what happened there and, and, and the experience I had. But 
the point is, is that, is that, you know, you'll hear it in the business world, take care of your people. Well, I don't know what that means. You give them pay raises, you pat them on the back, you say, good job with what you did in your cubicle today. But if you're out there and somebody's carrying stuff across a mountain and they're facing poisonous snakes and crocodiles and such like that, it becomes a whole different thing. And uh, you really take care of them and you make sure that you make sure that they come first. That's something I learned. Of all the historical expedition leaders, who do you admire most? Well, you know, uh, personally, I, I mean, I have an affinity for Burton. I'm looking at a, a bust of Richard Francis Burton up here because I understand him the most. I understand what he did and how he thought because I, I think there are some similarities in, in thinking. But the fact of the matter is, in, in studying this and, and looking at, 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 at people, I would go back to this. Most of these famous explorers at this house is a monument to, by the way, it's a monument to these guys, uh, what's in this house, to these famous Victorian type explorers. You'll find a common thread with most of them. They're egomaniacs and they were out hell bent for fortune and glory. And that's what they were out to do. And some of, for some of them, it meant little uh, what happened to people along the way, what happened to others. Uh, in their great quest. But if you look at Dr. David Livingstone, who spent his life in Central Africa and basically gave his life uh, doing what he did in suppression of the slave trade, and the fact that somehow this old man could move through these tribal groups, um, and they left him alone. They let him go, and he would go through, and he'd get in these areas that a guy like Henry Morton Stanley, who I, who I, I, greatly, greatly admire, had to shoot his way through these areas. But Livingstone didn't. What made the difference? The guy was a, was, was, he was a religious fellow and a medical doctor, but he brought some aura with him that, that where he didn't need the violence and such that occurred with some of the Victorian area, uh, Victoria, Victorian era um, explorers. So I admire him greatly for what he did. And the fact that he had such a passion to try to eradicate the heinous slave trade you know, that was raging through Africa at that time. Something just occurred to me when you were talking about Burton, because if I remember from his biography, most of his travels, his experiences were pretty much on his own. He wasn't part of any big, well, yeah. except for maybe going for the source of the Nile. But, you know, when yeah. he was in India, when he was in the Middle East, he was usually yeah. on his own. Um, and your travels are a lot like that, where when you say solo, you're on your own in as far as Western connections, but you're relying on on local resources. You think um, you think that way of traveling, although much more dangerous for a number of reasons. Do you think that you experience the area and the people in a different, maybe better way? Well, I think I just can't get anyone that will go with me, quite frankly. Uh, the, the, uh, the thing is, is that um, there's something to when you're alone, truly alone, that I, I enjoy. And the South Pole is where it got intensified times 100 being alone. Um, that was a whole different story. But on my travels, Burton, you're right. Burton was almost always alone. And I would say this about Burton. He wasn't a great leader. He didn't lead. If you look at his history. It wasn't as a leader. It was, he was this swashbuckling, larger-than-life character. But if you look at it, though, you know the few times he had was in a leadership role, whether it was on the coast of Somali, where his Somalia, where his camp got overrun and these guys killed, or whether it was the mess with John Hanning Speak when Speak claimed the source of the Nile when he, you know, did his thing and left Burton for a few days, it became a a, 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 a disaster, a catastrophe. So Burton was more of a solo flyer. 
I am too, quite frankly. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do enjoy uh, And here's a funny story. One thing I did talk about is 1987, I went down to Erie and in New Guinea. That was my, that was my, let's see, it was my first trip to the Indonesian side. And I'm on this aircraft. And it's little when we're going down into to the Wamana area, and I've got all my, my gear ready to be good heading out in the jungle, got kind of a plan. And I meet these two German fellows on there, on the aircraft. And, hey, these guys look the part of hardened explorers. They had the cool khaki shirts with the epaulots. And as we were talking on the aircraft, they told me they, they'd just come back from a trip to the Amazon jungle. And, and, just, and they were going to be filming. They were going to film do a video documentary down in New Guinea. And, and then after we talked, they want to know, do I want to, do I want to be part of it? Well, not only was that part of it, I set it up. I set up that we would get to this place up in the high plateau. Um, we would start the trek from there. Uh, I worked it out with the people that had the small Cessna to get us up that high. And then we would walk from there and head out. Well, you know, you really need to check out people more before you head out in a place like that with them, because we got up on this place called Kuiawagi in the high plateau, and it rained. I mean, it rained and rained torrentially. I had this beautiful North Face tent, and other than a little bit of dampness, I'd seam sealed it, and it was, you know, I spent a good night. But I could hear the Germans screaming during the night, and the word Wasser came up a lot. Wasser, Wasser, you know, water is <laughs> coming as it's pouring through the tent. Well, I should have known. The tent was this cheap orange thing that should never, have, you know, it was not an expedition-style tent. And when I got up in the morning, I was horrified to see that one of the German sleeping bags was a Mickey Mouse. It actually had Mickey Mouse logo on the bag. Um, as I got to, and then their gear was so heavy because it was so wet, no one would carry it because it weighed, now the sleeping bag weighed 50 pounds soaking wet. So the whole thing was a debacle. It was a debacle, but it was a funny debacle. They didn't have all the right gear, but they carried enormous amounts of chocolate. I really like chocolate. So there was a redeeming, you know, feature. And, and the things that occurred with these guys was, was so humorous that um, I was only with them for a while. And then they stopped. They found there was an aircraft going out of a village and they flew back and I kept going. But I'd never had a funny time like that before watching these guys. You know, well, one instant wasn't funny, but the, the majority of the time with them, it was actually amusing to see these guys that should have never been out there. And when questioned, when they finally fessed up to their Amazon trip, um, where they had, you know, they had gone to, it was a big city on the coast of the Amazon. They had told the local populace that they were photographers for the German version of Playboy magazine. So attracted young ladies for photo session in their, in their room. And their jungle was probably out back behind the hotel that they, that they had done. So they were truly charlatans. And for the most part, it was, uh, I had some fun, but later they showed me the video they took and I was quite, my part in the video is like in the background. You kind of see me in one scene sort of in the back and this and that, and they're doing this thing where one of them is crossing this river and it looks like George Washington crossing the Potomac. And I don't know what they're saying. It's all in German, but it was absolute bullshit. And it, and it really taught me something about what happens with these, these expeditions and how they, I would call very few things that are occurring these days, true expeditions, but that was an absolute I wouldn't call it catastrophe because I found it so funny, but it was um, a good an experience about being with other people that with pros and cons. It's not easy to be in some of these situations with other, you know, with other people sometimes. In this case, it was so amusing. It was worthwhile. Plus the chocolate. Plus the chocolate is all about these big blocks of chocolate. <laughs> 
It's really yeah. good. <laughs> Always be careful who you rope up to. Oh God, you know that as a climber. <laughs> Let me ask a, a little bit more serious question. Because you you've um put it out there quite a few times. What is the closest that you came to maybe have gone too far? Does that make sense? Um yeah, no, that's a really that's a the, an interestingly worded question. And I you know, it was fairly interesting. When I came back from the Amazon, I remember my father-in-law at the time, because it was a mess. And of course, they didn't, th- they thought I was dead and it could cause a little bit of problems and such. And when I came back, he said to me, does this take a little wind out of your sails? I said, are you kidding? I'm heading back as soon as I can. There wasn't, you know, I mean, I felt bad about that. And I feel worse today, much worse now than I did back then. It's funny how the years have, have changed the feelings on that disaster. but. um there was a scene, there was a thing that happened once when I was out on my third winter. That was my second winter. And I, it was the sun was starting to come up and the wind was blasting. It was about 25 knots. It's probably minus 80, 90, 70 something, 80. And it was blasting me in the face. And I was starting my walk, my daily walk. And I climbed, I was climbed up on this little ice hill while it was hitting me. And I thought, it finally, it kind of hit me. I thought, what in the hell am I doing? This, this is so far from no. I started laughing and laughing, and I'm glad no one was out there who would have seen me because I was I was almost hysterically laughing, like what the hell happened in life where I like this, where this is pleasant, where this is you know the windshield must have been 110 or something below. I was protected, but it it kind of hit me that little bit of this is not really normal, but I was enjoying the shit out of it. Yeah, that's that's the kind of times that you start to you uh, question your sanity. Then you have another scotch. Yeah. Look at the map and go out again. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's it's all about that. It's uh, these moments of clarity sometimes come, but never, never, never anything where I wouldn't have done what I've done. Um, you know, the thing too, Mike, is in it because we're just talking and we don't get into great detail on certain things. I'm a very careful individual, very, very careful. I'm very, very careful and cautious what I do. That doesn't mean I haven't pushed the envelope with doing things, but I'm not a daredevil. I never was. I wasn't the kid on the bicycle that flew over the house and did crazy stuff and all that. No way. I, I'm, I'm, I calculate things. I want to minimize risk as best I can. And I, and I want to come back alive from anything that I've done. And I always assume that I will. Uh, but I, um, but I'm, but I'm careful and cautious, and I try not to do stupid things. It's interesting you say that. I've, I've interviewed now a number of, of uh, people like you that go out on expeditions, various kinds. And one of the common themes is risk management. Just like you said, you don't be silly. You don't take, yeah. you take measured risks, but you do everything in your power to prepare. Like the tent that you had with the yeah. scene. Yeah. Here, so that you're not waking up with a bag full of, well, a Mickey Mouse bag that's yeah. full of water. Full of water. Yeah. <laughs> well, you prepare. You I mean you you prepare, and that's something that I that I believe in. And to the point, another thing is physical fitness. Um, I have I'm a runner. I'm a runner, and I, I I've logged in every mile I've run uh, since about 1981. And so it's around. I don't know. I haven't because the last couple of years I haven't even totalized them, but it's probably 
it's probably 45,000 or so miles of running. And I want to be fit and ready to go for anything. Now, unfortunately, with 45,000 miles of running, what I've done is develop some chronic injuries too. That's what happened. But the point is, is that it, I think it's important to be physically prepared for things. And so I t- always, particularly me, being a Marine too many years ago, uh, I didn't ever want to get myself in a spot where I physically wasn't able to proceed, you know, go farther, keep going. And I've, I've never reached any kind of limit there. And that's, I think that's important. Important to be careful, be cautious, not the daredevil. What are your future plans? Do you have any, uh, any expeditions on the horizon? Well, i tell you what, you know, I don't know if we're going to get into the South Pole stuff, but I completed three winters at the South Pole as the, uh, as the uh, winter manager at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. Um, that was a tremendous experience. And, and that experience is done now. I've, I've, uh, I've completed that and um, happy that it's, it's finished. Uh, and I have uh, another job out in the Kwajalein, out in the Marshall Islands specific that I'm supposed to head out to uh, sometime in the fall. I would like to do some expeditionary plans. And of all things, I'd like to get back to New Guinea, to Indonesia, New Guinea, and see what's left there to do. But with this, with the COVID thing, I need to be very cautious with that because I don't know when they're going to open these things up. And I also don't want to be the one that exposes some tribal people to this shit, you know. Uh, and so, so I'll have to proceed cautiously with that. So I have the job out in the Marshall Islands. And if I, if I can't do any expeditionary things due to the COVID, uh, Marshall Islands, if I do that, um, there's some interesting Pacific cultural things that I'm really – I love the Pacific and I love the, the culture of the Pacific Islands. So I'll, I'll probably concentrate on that. What is it like to be at the South Pole in that area? It's cold. Um, you know, you know, people ask me about that, what my draw was that. And quite frankly, if you look at my house, I do have a polar room in the back dedicated to polar explorers. But personally, I like warm. I like warmth. I like the tropics. I love the jungle. I love all that stuff. But what drew me to the South Pole, to that program, was the great struggle that occurred during what was known as the heroic age of exploration. And the great struggle, you know, with uh, Roald Amundsen, Captain Scott, um, Ernest Shackleton, and, uh, you know, what happened uh, for these men and the different techniques and the different leadership styles that they used to try to get to the South Pole was a fascinating thing for me. So, so. Um, some years ago, uh, I ended up uh, being selected as uh, a winter manager at the South Pole. And for viewers, uh, winter at the South Pole is most of the year, starting from February all the way into November. And we would deploy early. So we were there at a year at a time. So I was there almost three years in total at the South Pole and through three dark winters. I, I, uh, when someone asks what it's like, I'll always just tell them that it was cold. Because there's a million other things I could say. Have to be more specific. It's a vast expanse of white, obviously, from all the ice. For someone who's used to jungle green or being up in the mountains, how do you get used to just seeing just white? Yeah. Listen, Mike, that's a good question because people, a lot of times, most people that have been to Antarctica, whether it was on an Antarctic cruise or whether they worked at McMurdo Station or one of the coastal stations, that's what they know the mountains, the sea life, the, let's see, the sea life that they have there, the killer whales, all those cool things. The pole doesn't have anything like that. It has, it's an ice cap, a flat ice cap, nearly a thousand miles, you know, around there is nothing. That appeals to me. I also do have an affinity with the desert, with this vast, 
nothingness and just that ice cap is is truly it's devoid of life other than us but see then that brings up another thing and i reached an interesting point in my life where this became very important to me and that was leadership and interaction with other people because while we didn't have the animal life while we were cut off like we are for most of the year from the rest of the world it was a chance to test out my own leadership style and take care of three south pole winter crews that was fascinating. I didn't need to look at whales and seabirds and things. What'd you learn? I learned that my style worked, uh, that the style that I developed for that, and it was, I thought it out ahead of time on how I would be as a leader. And it, it worked. And we had three highly successful South Pole winters that I'm very proud of those crews. And now that station, just so folks know, it, it, it's a, a science station, is it not? Yes, it is. Uh, main thing is astronomical science. Has some incredible science going on there now with the Ice Cube Neutrino um, Laboratory, uh, the South Pole Telescope, uh, the Marvin Pomerantz Observatory, and the Arrow that uh, the NOAA runs for weather and, and uh, climate uh, type uh, data gathered there. So, yeah, it's uh, the main thing. The main reason for the South Pole Station is is just that science, and to be part of that and be the station manager in charge of keeping that together through a dark and cold South Pole winter was to me. Um, a absolute honor to be to lead those crews, those wonderful people. And it has to be a challenge for the, the psychological effects of the isolation and the cold and the dark. Absolutely. And that's what my book goes into a bit, particularly my isolation, because I isolated myself as a leader from the crew in a lot of ways. And I, I did it for their own good. Um, it was best. Uh, I, I know it worked. I know it didn't work in the past. And so I was incredibly alone while I was there. At the same time, I hope incredibly responsive to taking care of them. They were more important than anything to me. Their health and welfare always came first. But it's a true test of leadership. And different styles have been used from I'm everybody's buddy, which doesn't work, to hands off, let it run itself, which you know might work with the right crew. My style was different. I melded a thing, a love of history, where I did historical uh, presentations to my crew, where the crews knew that they that they were uh, where they thing that's always important to me is who came before us. Let's acknowledge those people, Roald Amundsen, Captain Scott, Ernest Shackleton. So I would bring things from my personal collection. I would have movie nights and we would talk about, you know, to the interested people anyway, about those people that had come before us. That was really important to me. And then the next thing was that I did was develop the crew concept. And they'd kind of laugh sometimes. My crews would laugh, but I, for each one of them, I, I would always say like, you are the 2017 South Pole Winter Crew. You are the only 2017 South Pole Winter Crew there will ever be. This is it. You are it. And that, and each crew knew that. It, when we came back from that, we have a patch. A patch is made. It's like a space mission. Those people from my years, 2017, 2019, 2020, I wanted them to feel the pride of what they did and what they did spending a year of their life at the South Pole and to, and, and to feel good about, you know, um, the experience and what they had learned and how they had interacted with other crew members. And it's very, very important to me uh, that, that, they, that they experienced and they appreciated the great gift we were all given to be at the South Pole for a year. Outstanding. And it's got to be, and I can see it in your face, just the pride that you have in those three years of being part of that. Yeah, Mike, there's nothing like it. These other things I did, I consider fairly minor after that. Um, it was very interesting. I remember my first year when the station was closing and one of the people that was leaving said, well, Wayne, 
get ready for the greatest adventure of your life. And I, and I laughed at that time because I'd been through some adventures, some, you know, hair raising, no shit, real deal adventures. And I didn't think, you know, the South pole would be it, but it was in a different way. It was taking care of these crews. Um, and then being so alone too, which my leadership style kind of, kind of had, you know, utilized that as a, to have a little bit of a, I had a gulf between myself, and my crews, which I love these people, but I needed to maintain that gulf to maintain what I needed to do for their own good. Uh, there's nothing quite like it on the planet though. There's, you know, we have numbers. I'm 1,522. That's my nuts. Uh, around 1600 people have wintered at the South pole over 5,000 have climbed Mount Everest. And I wouldn't put the two things are totally different things, but uh, the winter crew members that have done that, they have a number, they're very proud of it. And I wanted my crews to be exceptionally proud of what they did. Tried to keep them on track. So they would be because some years, it, not so much. You'll see. Do you look back or have you taken time to reflect that maybe all of these expeditions, all of these remote postings as a, defense contractor, things that you've experienced basically prepared you for those three years in the Arctic, Antarctic. Yeah. Yes, Mike. And I was thinking about that when you mentioned that, that when I think about my expeditions and my guys with malaria, for example, seeing the effects of what I had done and, and, and doing what I could to, you know, get these guys back to health and get these guys home or 20 years working around the world through two wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, Wake Island, um, Saudi Arabia, uh, um, Midway Atoll, Shimia Island, Alaska, Ascension Island, South Atlantic. I was in some pretty remote sites around the world. And, and so at, it came at the right time. And I, no one's a perfect leader, but I learned some things that worked and I learned things that didn't work. And it, uh, for example, I'm having a nice scotch tonight, but for a year, I wouldn't have a drink. When I'm with my, my crews, I'd have a drink at the end. When we're done, we all get together and I have a drink because I'm on duty every night. It's all on me. Anything happens. And there can never be uh, the, the thought that, you know, uh, one thing led to another. The station manager was drinking. That's happened in the past. Uh, I would never have that. And I wanted to make my crew very aware that I wanted them to have a good time. There is alcohol there. But for me, I was on duty 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I had the way the world on my shoulder. I and mean, we had the COVID crisis to be there at the South Pole, had pressures that I, I hadn't felt in the two years prior. And um, so it's nice to have a scotch here back in Texas, that's for sure. Wayne, it's been a pleasure. I know you've got a lot more stories, and I hope we can bring you back uh, in the future. So tell us some more. I would like to hear, love to hear about more about that trips through Zululand and then and also in the Amazon. Yeah. Those would be good, Mike, for the future. Those are kind of their own things once I put some things together for the I'm converting old slides and old uh geez, old negatives that I haven't seen in many years to, you know, digital format. And um that'd be something we might want to talk about in the future. Definitely. Now, in the meantime, is there any way for people to follow your work and what you're doing? Well, probably the Facebook. I my Instagram thing is very primitive. I'm going to be setting up a uh, a website because of the book that I've written. Um, I'm signing a, a deal with a publisher this week, but I would say, you know, Facebook, I, I post everything publicly on there. So anybody, you know, Wayne White can find me, maybe, I don't know how you do the search engine thing for Facebook, but um, please, you know, take a look. Uh, I'm near my 5,000 friend limit. So sometime I've got, I've got to do some, you know, make, <laughs> I got to figure that out a little bit on how that 
you know, keep that number manageable. Nice. All right, Wayne, it's been a, it's been a real honor. It's been a real pleasure. And, uh, I think I might go find, uh, a, a drink myself for tonight. Sounds good, Mike. Thanks. It was a, it was really fun talking to you and, uh, uh, thanks for the opportunity. I hope people enjoy this. I'm sure they will. Cheers. And we'll see you Cheers. down the road. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world. <laughs>